Thank you for downloading our podcast. Zachariah is a prophet who delivers a message to Israel regarding their national failure to prioritize the rebuilding of God's temple. We might say, well, this is only a building. So what really is the big deal? The big deal is that we see a deeper problem in the stalling of the construction project. The problem in the issue is whether the Lord really can build his people in his city into a place that is worthy of his dwelling. So can the Lord build his city? Is the Lord sovereign enough to bring his redeemed people into his presence as he has promised at the exit of Eden? Please stay tuned to this series on Zechariah, where we consider the night visions. Are they visions of doom or deliverance? When we talk about war strategies and what people try to do and the ideal of going to war, Generally, the claim and the desire is you take out those in authority, those who give commands, and the hope is that the army or whoever you're battling is going to scatter and uh, not fully know what to do. We have Satan basically at the Garden of Eden with Adam trying to undermine the creation order. We see Satan with Christ, and we find with Satan continually holding out for Christ a promise of glory a kingdom of ease, a life of securing the kingdom without suffering. Because honestly, if you think about what hell really means, the absence of God's love and the full presence of his wrath, no one in their right mind who truly understands what that concept means would consciously endure hell. Because as Christ turns his face to Jerusalem, He knows that that the pain is not just the cross, not just dying on a tree. The pain is enduring the full wrath of his father. And so when you think about and, and start meditating on that concept of Christ going to Jerusalem, knowing full well what he is to do, you would think about this in terms of battle strategies as well and say this is absurd. Why would you take the commander of the Lord's army, as we've seen in Zechariah, right? The angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, sending out his scouts, sending out the heavenly army, going forth throughout the world. You would say you, you don't take that commander who has his feet literally on the ground, receiving reports from his warriors, and send him to death. But yet we find that is the exact battle strategy of the gospel. And Zechariah is laying this out clearly and assuring us that there is a purpose. Because he tells us there is a cut-off shepherd, one who is cut off. He tells us there is one uh, who is going to come and cut off some of the sheep. But then we find ultimately there's consecrated citizens who will dwell in the heavenly city. As we've read uh, from Hebrews 13, a reminder, our calling's not in this world. This, This is not the city of rest. We look to the city of God. And so when we think about these points and what Zechariah is laying out, how do we know that Christ is truly going to be victorious? Humanly speaking, it's an absurd battle plan. But yet, we find this is a plan that's literally from another world. And so let's begin then with this cut-off shepherd and the prophecy of what's going on. 
Notice the, the tragedy, the, the, the transition. You move from verse 6 where you have a, a prophet who literally made profit, pardon the pun, but he, he made his living scamming the people with false prophecies. The prophet then turns on that and says, oh no, I, I was never a false prophet, even though the scars testify to me being one identified as a prophet of Baal. That's honestly from my friends. I, I didn't do that. That's where we end in verse 6. Now we go to verse 7 and there's this command, awake, O sword. That this is a command to take up arms. A command to, to go to war. And as he's going to war, we, we need to remember the context of this war. Remember, we talked about Zechariah 12 through 14, basically building on those uh, visions, but talking about the day of the Lord. Uh, we find 14 times uh, that this on that day is used between 12 and 14. Prior to this, it's only used four times in Zechariah. And so this is telling us uh, chapter 12, we have it used five times. Chapter 13, used three times. And 14, going to the, the climax of all this that will, Lord willing, take up as a whole chapter, where we have it used six times. Driving home the point of what the day looks like on that day, the day of the Lord. Now what we've learned of this day is that the Lord is the one who simply is going to make everything right. But as we, we look at that and we, we think about what Zechariah has taught us, we have this command, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So you say, well, what, what is the Lord talking about here? Remember we've talked about uh, this promise of how the Lord is going to keep his people and he will bring his people from the nations in 2 verse 11. So we, we have to see this not just as Judah proper or Israel proper, but what Israel fully means of the people that God has wrestled with, the people who wrestle with their God, and the people who are fundamentally brought together in the power of their king. God has triumphed over his people, Israel. We are part of Israel. That's what Zechariah has told us in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we have that vision of Satan bringing accusations against Joshua, the high priest. Joshua has no defense. He recognizes his garments are tarnished. He's not called to truly be the priest. He's not worthy of that calling. The Lord may want him to be the priest, but he's not worthy of that. What is the promise there? The angel of the Lord says, I will take your iniquity upon you. He reconstitutes the nation of Israel, but he gives a promise that in the ultimate victory of this kingdom, each man will sit under his own vine. Again, 3 verse 10, the promise of prosperity, that there's going to be choice vines, most likely echoing Genesis 49 with the promise of tying the colt to the choice vine, that there's so many choice vines, so much wealth in this land uh, that it really doesn't matter. You, you can just sort of squander it and be irresponsible. That's the ultimate trajectory of where chapter 3 is going. The Lord is the one who rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. Now the humble, as we find there, is not just that he's being a humble king, uh, but we said that he's going into Jerusalem as a, as a king. Uh, we've said and we've shown 
uh, from the kings that this is a royal procession. It's, it's a lot like the presidential limousine. That's the picture here. So when Christ goes into Jerusalem on the donkey, it is Christ coming into Jerusalem claiming it's a time of peace and he's a rightful king. So you can understand uh, why the leaders of Israel are upset by this very thing. But nevertheless, that's the promise. He's going to come into Jerusalem and he's going to ride into Jerusalem and he's going to save his people. Chapter 11, we have this strange role play of Zechariah being the shepherd. And as he's a shepherd, he shatters uh, those two staffs, the staff of unity and the staff of favor. And so it's, it's showing that, that somehow this, this national people, this, this arrangement's going to be cut off. And we say, well, well why? What, what, what's going on? What does that mean? Well, we find as it develops that the people of Israel will pierce the shepherd. They are going to do this, but the Lord will bring mourning and there will be sorrow for this. So now when we go to chapter 13, verse 7, that it's a clarification that this cutting off of Christ is not accidental. Because we might think that maybe when Christ goes into Jerusalem on the donkey, it's premature. The people don't want to embrace him. They don't want to accept him. And so it, it testifies to the plan of God being accidental. It's not what God really wanted, we might think. But Zechariah 13, 7 is making clear to us it's not an accident. The Lord is actually calling the sword to turn against his shepherd. But this is not something where the Lord just goes, whoops, didn't see that happening. It's a promise of what the Lord is going to do. When he says in Zechariah 3, I will take your iniquity upon myself. He's laying out the battle plan. Listen, when Christ is mounted on the donkey, he goes into Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be cut off. They're going to be cut to the heart. They're going to repent. But understand this. It's not accidental. As Peter himself in his Pentecost sermon says that it is by the plan and foreknowledge of God. But he also says to the people, the one whom you crucified. And so as Peter identifies this, it's taking the reality of what Zechariah 13, 7 promises. Peter's saying, listen, it's not accidental that Christ came to Jerusalem and died upon the cross. That was his mission. It's laid out here explicitly in Zechariah 13, verse 7. That is what's going to happen. And as he goes and he experiences this cutting off, He's the one who's going to be cut off and experiencing the wrath of God. Now, as we hear this, we understand that this Lord, as he engages in this battle, the coming of Christ, experiencing this, this turmoil, we might wonder, well, how exactly is he going to be cut off? Where it says, oh, sword. Now, when you think about a, a sword, we might say, well, Christ wasn't literally cut off by a sword. He was crucified. The sword is figurative. Is speaking of the, the reality of one who's cut off and experiencing the wrath of God. It's a call to war. It's the Lord saying it's no longer negotiation. We're no longer sitting around the table trying to figure out how to come to terms. We're no longer sitting around the table debating boundaries or, or giving warning that I'm going to come to war. When he says, awake, O sword, this is the Lord saying, I am coming against you in war as a declaration of aggression. And so as God says this, 
It's against my shepherd. When he says my shepherd, it's identifying the one that the Lord sends to his people, the suffering servant. This isn't just Zechariah doing the role play, but this is my shepherd, the one that God has sent to do his will, the one who rode into Jerusalem in Zechariah 9 on the donkey. Now when he says my shepherd, he's a man who stands next to me. Now when you look at this, I don't know if this is necessarily the most persuasive verse for a Jehovah Witness, but it is certainly telling us that this is the Lord's right-hand man. This is Jesus Christ. This is telling us this is a shepherd that God sends into time, the one that God has appointed and, and the one who has covenanted with God to do his will. The one who takes on the flesh, the one who does the will of the Lord. Zechariah can only role play the shepherd. Zechariah is not the shepherd. And so it's very clear that Zechariah is saying there's going to be a specific shepherd. And you will see this specific shepherd and the Lord is going to strike him down with his sword and cut him off. This is not good. In the sense, when we think about the nature of what this tells us about sin, this is the only way Zechariah 3 can be fulfilled. This is the only way that our iniquities can be covered and, and taken away. But he tells us that in the consequence of the striking of the shepherd, remember Peter in his Pentecost sermon gives the assurance, you know, about the plan and foreknowledge of God is Peter's language. And the one whom you crucified, and so you, you see sort of that tension in Scripture. On the one hand, God wills it, but on the other hand, man's still held accountable uh, for his actions and for what he has done. And that's what goes on here. The Lord calls the sword. The Lord wills for the shepherd to be cut off, but he says, listen, you're going to strike down the shepherd. I mean, think about this with, with Judah hearing this. They're, they're coming to the Lord saying, we just want to rebuild the temple. We want to be settled in the land. There's a conspiracy against us. What are we supposed to do, O Lord? And the Lord says, well, I'm going to send my shepherd to you. He's going to come on a donkey, and you're going to cut him off. And when you cut him off, you are going to be scattered. Now you hear that, and you say, what? We want the temple. We want to dwell in your presence. But listen to what we're hearing. Listen to what Israel fundamentally wants. We want your temple. We want to dwell into your, in your presence on these terms. The very thing that Hebrews is caution, cautioning God's people against. Taking the religious um, items that God has ordained. There's nothing sinful about the temple. Nothing sinful about the tabernacle. But what's happened is Israel has trusted in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the kings, in the palace, and all these things, all these relics, if you will. Now, they're ordained by God. I don't want to minimize it. But Israel has held these things up to be in the place of God. They're not searching for God. And that's the problem. And so when Christ comes to them upon the donkey, they say, well, that's not the king we're looking for. We're looking for the guy with the sword. We're looking for the guy in the armor. We're looking for the guy who's going to make war with Rome, the one with the angels behind him. That's the battle plan we want. Zechariah 13 verse 7 begins by saying, no, the battle plan you want is a battle plan I'm going to give you, whether you want it or not. But your call is to be in line with that battle plan. 
I'm going to strike off the shepherd. I'm going to strike down the shepherd. You're going to send him to the cross. You will reject him. You will be scattered. And you are a people who are going to experience the wrath of God. So now when, when we hear that, we say, okay, well then, how does this play out? Well, just dealing with 13 verse 7 and, and the outworking of this, Christ comes, the Lord strikes him down, the people reject him, send him to the cross, and the scattering. What does Christ say in Matthew 24? Uh, Matthew 24, speaking of the demise and pattern of Israel as they become a model of God dwelling with his people on this earth, they also become a smaller uh, picture of God's judgment. Now, it's not the final judgment that's manifested there, but it's a picture of what the judgment looks like. That you have the nations coming against Israel and they are cut off. And so there is this, this presentation, this, this fulfillment in time, even though it's not the final definitive judgment, you do see the pattern of the Lord turning against his people. And so we say, okay, but is the Lord really going to turn against his sheep? Well, we find that the Lord does indeed cut off sheep. When you move on to verse 8, he says, in the whole land, two-thirds. I mean, think about this. Two-thirds are cut off and perish. So this is telling us what this day of the Lord looks like. Now, again, we've, we've mentioned day of the Lord manifests itself in a variety of ways. We have it with Christ and the cross. We have the Pentecost event where Peter identifies that literally as a day of the Lord. Matthew 24 is speaking of a manifestation of the day of the Lord in the sense of Israel being cut off by Rome and falling. And then we also have, of course, still the promise of the future day of the Lord when Christ comes again. And so this manifestation of what happens when the shepherd is cut off, that the people are going to scatter. So two-thirds are cut off. Uh, we're going to experience uh, this judgment and this, this horrible event and, and this tragedy. And again, I, I don't want to minimize uh, the tragedy of Jerusalem being cut off. I mean, people really died. Uh, people really suffered. And I, I don't think the prophet's being callous in this reality. But it serves as a warning, doesn't it? And it serves as a real warning for Christ's church. That it's telling us that we really need to make sure we embrace the Messiah. That, that, that we're not confident that we just go to church. or not confident just that uh, we are raised in the right family or raised in the right tradition or believe the right confessions. Now these, these are important things and these are blessings from God much like the temple tabernacle. But the call here is a call for us to truly ask ourselves, do I believe in Christ? That's the call. And it's a reminder that the Lord knows. And so when this happens, this is a reminder that the Lord's judgment does come against his church and come against his people as well. And so Zechariah is saying, be warned, O Israel. Be warned, O Christian church. Be warned, O Christian community. This is the reality of it. We see this pattern. But it tells us something else in terms of these cut-off sheep. When we think about uh, this striking, this cutting off. This cutting off is referring to the downside of a covenant. Uh, we think of Genesis 15.6. Uh, we can think of promises that are made in Deuteronomy 12.29 of the nations being cut off. 
Uh, we can think of Leviticus with covenant breakers. We can think of Genesis 17. The one who is not circumcised will be cut off. These sorts of things. And so this is basically the prosecution of the Lord's judgment being manifest. So if people say, well, what's the point of the fall of Jerusalem? We say, well, it's teaching us, as Zechariah tells us, that the Lord will come in judgment. Uh, he, he will judge even his church, even his community, and, and, and the Lord's judgment is real. It, it is a smaller manifestation, reminder of the unrest of this age. The battle of Armageddon is real. The promises of God will find their fulfillment. And yet we find that in the cutting off of, of Israel, even that's not accidental. It's not something where the Lord again, you know, put his hand against his head and said, oh my goodness, I never saw that happen. Zechariah is telling us this is the very thing. So when Christ rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, one of the things going on there is a cross, resurrection, and also the cutting off of Israel, as declared here. And so we, we have that warning then. The call, getting our attention, if you will. Listen, O oh people, God will bring his judgment. But the story and the prophecy does not end just in judgment. And this is where we have the consecrated citizens. Because the two-thirds are cut off, and then we have the one-third. And again, these are figurative numbers. I don't think we want to take all the Christians in covenant history and say, well, these two-thirds are gone, and, and this third has to be in. I don't think that's the intention. The intention is the remnant language, you know, calling our attention to uh, the exile and the remnant returning. Uh, we think of Elijah discouraged after the battle of the gods and hiding in the cave and, and the Lord saying, Elijah, why are you hiding? He says, oh, other people don't want me. Nobody believes, you know, nobody's here. I'm all alone. The Lord says, but I saved 7,000 for myself. So it's that remnant language that's called to our attention. The Lord preserves his people. He wrestles with his people. He triumphs with his people. And he is one in terms of that wrestling match who also refines his people. When you hear this language, a third into the fire, refine them as one refined silver and gold, we can't help but think of the Pentecost event and that Pentecost fulfillment the manifestation of the day of the Lord, that the tongues of fire being poured out. We think of Isaiah, the promise of, you know, if you walk through water, you walk through fire, there I am with you. Uh, the language of fire throughout Scripture as being these ordeal testings. Water, fire have these same meanings. When the Lord submits his people to these tests, the Lord is the one who, who is ultimately vindicated in the vindication or deliverance of his people. And so the Lord's saying, listen, in terms of this, when we see the Pentecost event, this is a fulfillment and manifestation of the day of the Lord. Now, as Zechariah gives us promise, and he tells us the Lord is going to refine us. What do we have in chapter 10? Even in the midst of Israel being in exile, having the nations literally conspire against them. Israel turning to false gods and manipulations uh, to have a successful harvest and, and, and success in, in their life. What does the Lord tell them in 10 verse 1? Call out to your God. That's what the Lord wants. 
So we're, we're finding where Christ is going. It's not just to judge. It's not just to bring people to their demise. But it's to work in the lives of his people. He wants us to call out to him. We're not to rely on ourselves. That's what we're tempted to do. Jacob, his whole life, relies on himself until he starts walking with a limp after the wrestling match and is called, I have wrestled, I have prevailed. Learning that one prevails only by clinging and finding their existence and meaning in their Savior. And so when the Lord gives us promise that he's going to throw the third into the fire, we wonder, does this mean two-thirds are cut off, one-third's burned up? But this is where you've got to put it in the context. I will refine them. When people say that they want to be holy and sanctified, this is a wonderful thing. We should want to be holy and sanctified. But this process is not always pleasant. That's what we learn from the prophet. This process isn't always pleasant. I mean, I've learned you don't pray for patience because you end up finding people doing 45 on the left-hand side of the road. You're in long lines. You just learn to kick that prayer down the road. But that's the reality of what this is getting at, isn't it? We don't want this refinement. But the refinement is not something that's, that's enjoyable. I mean, seriously, watch a, a video of gold being refined and burned up and poured out. That's the imagery of what's going on here. And what is the temptation we have? I mean, this is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 verse 7. James uses language like this. Isaiah 60, or Psalm 66.10 uses language like this. What is the imagery? What is the point? Well, we like Job, and I'm not throwing Job under the bus, can think God has abandoned us. I'm suffering. I'm feeling the pain and weight of this age. Where is God in the midst of this, we're tempted to say. That's what Zechariah is getting at. We're going to be brought to the place where, where we find what we are fundamentally made of. And, and we're going to be pushed beyond that. Much like Jacob wrestling all night. Do you think that was enjoyable? Is this one of Esau's men? Is he going to kill me? Is he going to drown me? Well, what is the end of this evening? And then he realizes, oh my goodness, when he touches my hip, he could have slaughtered me. He could have smashed me. He could have sent me to hell and done all sorts of things. But he realizes by the grace of God, he's been delivered. That's the imagery of what Zechariah is saying. That as we go through this pattern, and where I think it's important to hear Peter in 1 Peter 1.7, I'd argue picking up on this. Many times uh, people cite other Old Testament references, but I see Peter going back to this. Because what does Peter exhort us to see ourselves? We are a wilderness people. And being in a time of a wilderness is a time of exile. It's a time with Israel being in Babylon, Assyria. We find that there's times when it's pretty easy to be over there. It's, you can literally go about your days, go about your life, worship freely, not necessarily always so miserable. Other times there's some pretty intense persecution and horrible things that happen. That's the nature of the wilderness. It's going to ebb and flow. What we find in this narrative is the purpose of why God is doing this. Because as God pushes us, as God tests us, 
What he said in Zechariah 10 verse 1, call upon me, don't turn to your false gods, pray to me, call to me. That is what I desire. What does he go on? They will call upon my name. The Lord is pushing us in this wilderness experience so we recognize I'm not as strong and viral and strong and, and, and powerful as I once thought I was. I'm recognizing the common curse. I'm recognizing my weakness. I'm recognizing I, I, I'm not the one that's able to make all these things happen that I thought could happen. I need to fall on my knees before my God. That's where the Lord is bringing us. But notice, as it says, I will say they are my people. The beauty of this is when the Lord brings Israel into the land, you have the loami. You may have heard this language before. It means not my people in the Hebrew. And it means that these people are not my people, loami. They, they are uh, distant from me. They're not the sojourners. They're the ones that need to be exterminated. Do you know who the loami were? Us. We were the enemies of God. We were the enemies of Israel. But now he takes the loami, the not my people, and makes us Ami, my people. I mean, what a wonderful transition we have here where the Lord is saying, listen, I'm going to refine you. I'm going to break you. I'm going to bring you to a point where you see what you are made of. And then I'm going to push you beyond that so you'll call out to me. And we say, well, what, what's the good in that? And he says, because you will be calling upon me. And I will say, they are my people. In other words, God has designated us. And what do we come away with at the end of all this refinement, all of this testing? That again, we have a consciousness much like at the end of Job where he says, my eyes see you. In other words, I, I knew about you cognitively. I, I knew my theology. But now I really see you and know you. That's the beauty of where this ends. Of the third that are sanctified where God does not abandon, does not turn his back. He says, they will say, the Lord is my God. In other words, it's not the Lord is a God, which is Zechariah 10 verse 1. You know, the Lord's probably high. Other gods that kind of want to keep around, you know, just sort of as backup. Now we have this exclusive conviction where we say, no, the Lord is my God. That is how we proceed in the midst of this suffering and struggling. Where do you find the apostles? Huddled in a room, scared of Roman authority, wondering if they have been duped by a very uh, sinister rabbi who may have been very persuasive and very good at, at duping them. And what do they realize? How wrong they are. That the very mission of Christ they should have seen as it's laid out here clearly in Zechariah. He's going to Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey. He's going to the cross to face death and hell. He's going to be raised from the dead and he is going to sanctify, consecrate his people. And that's the beauty of our God being the shepherd king that he is. He could have left Israel. He could have left his disciples in that room he could have given them revelation, you know, 40 days later, 60 days later, or years later, but he doesn't do that. He stands in the midst of them. He pursues them. 
He doesn't leave them on their course. That's what we learn in Zechariah. Yes, the fall of Jerusalem is a tragedy. Yes, there's a tragedy that God's own people have rejected the Messiah. But the beauty of all that is it's not accidental to the plan of God. And maybe the greatest mystery for me after going through this is why Christ would enter history knowing full well this is the plan. And, and you can understand in that high priestly prayer in, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ saying, is there another way? Is there another way? Because you can understand Christ knows what hell is like. Praise be to God, we never will. And so when we ask that question, of how does this day comfort us? It comforts us in knowing that the patterns of what God has revealed show his interaction in history. It's not theoretical. God doesn't just sort of check in once in a while. God is the one who knows full well his people, the national Israel, will be cut off. He knows full well that his people will be scattered. But the beauty of this day as we see it manifested in Pentecost with the flames of fire. We may say, we don't have the flames of fire, but that's the reality of the Spirit being poured out. That one-time event testifies to the power of that fire that is present within us. That's what it's picturing. That the Spirit is actually sanctifying us, purifying us, prodding us, moving us, so that we call out to our God as we are supposed to call out to Him. That our Lord says, they are my people. No longer lo a me, but a me, my people. And that we have the assurance of saying, the Lord is my God. Let us continue then in seeing the comfort that even as we may feel and experience the refining fire of God, it's not always nice, not always pleasant to endure. The sanctification and the burning off of our impurities is painful. But there's an end to it. There's a goal. Our God is making us a holier people. A people who are weaned off this world. Clinging to him. And continuing on our sojourn. With our eyes focused to heaven. As a people who are joined to our Savior. Let us continue then to call upon our God. And let us continue to say, the Lord is my God. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.